Welcome to God for Grownups. I'm your host, Pastor Dan Peterson of Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. On every episode of this show, we explore a topic from different theological perspectives, sharing ideas and dispelling common myths, <laughs> seeking a greater understanding of scripture and connecting scripture to everyday life and larger events in the world. My guest on this episode is Thomas J. Ord, a theologian and scholar, as well as the author of 26 books. Is that correct? Or at least I have here of more than 25 books. So yeah, to be honest, I don't remember. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't even keep count. I, <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> this is not a problem that we share. <laughs> uh, so so uh, his almost most recent book, uh, one that uh, I really enjoyed reading is God Can't how to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And before we have our conversation about this book, I was hoping that for the benefit of our listeners, some of whom may not have had the opportunity to read the book, how would you sum up uh, your central thesis and why was it important for you to write this book? Well, first, it's a real pleasure to have the conversation with you and to be talking about these issues because they're some of the most important issues I think anyone, whether you believe in God or not, anyone thinks about. But especially if you're someone like me who believes in God, the big question will, I think, eventually arise. If there is a God and if this God is perfectly loving and powerful, then why is there pointless pain in my life and in the world? Why is there unnecessary suffering or the phrase I like best, genuine evil? If God is so good and so powerful, why doesn't God prevent the crap that you and I go through, the pain that we don't need? And we can ask this question from, you know, a sort of a, a macro perspective and bring in wars and holocausts, and those are important. We can ask this from a very personal perspective, because just about everybody I know has had something in their own life or their family that just doesn't make sense. And um, this particular book, God Can't, seeks to provide an actual solution to the question of why God doesn't stop the genuine evils of the world. I know that probably sounds bold to some people <laughs> that I'm offering a solution, but um, I really do think it solves at least the central theoretical question that I've, I've mentioned. And um, God can't has uh, really five answers, but the biggest and most controversial one is in the book title. God simply can't single-handedly prevent genuine evils because God's love is uncontrolling. Because God loves everyone and everything down to the smallest units of reality. I think God can't control anyone or anything. And so I wrote this book to answer this big question uh, questions that not only, you know, really smart academic people ask, but just your average person on the street. 
It strikes me both in conversation already and in the book itself. I love the, I guess I want to say the audacity of your claim <laughs> that, that, that you can answer what some people consider to be an unanswerable question or, or a topic that, that, that completely uh, eludes the, the human mind. I want to get to that, but before I do, I want to, I want to get to the title itself, which I've been going through a, a, a program right now to, to, to do some physical rehabilitation and I'm dealing with chronic pain. And so I, I usually often when I go, uh, I'll bring a book with me. And your book has been the featured book for the last uh, few <laughs> weeks. And I, I really get a kick out of how people respond to just the cover of the book. I mean, in big, bold letters is, is the title, God Can't. And even this morning, I, I, I didn't have a conversation with the person sitting next to me, but I noticed out of the corner of my eye that she was looking down at the title of the book. <laughs> and it seemed like she really wanted to engage me on this, even though that, that didn't happen. I can see where this would be, and frankly, as I read it, uh, and as you point out, good news. I mean, really good news. But that's a counterintuitive claim. Yeah. And I was curious, uh, before we get to the good news, of how, how do you respond to people for whom this is potentially bad news? And, and why do you think it is bad news for them? Well, I think there are some people who are in difficult situations or who have big questions about the evils of the world, and they want to believe that in some mysterious way, it's all for the good. It's all a part of some mysterious divine plan. And um, to hear the idea that God can't prevent evil, for some, I think, undermines their hope that they're actually might get out of their situation or there might be some, you know, ultimate explanation that for a God, for why God caused or allowed these evils. Um, but as you said, for other people, it's good news because they have grown tired of thinking that God was going to jump in and rescue them when God hasn't. And so hearing that God can't prevent their suffering, can't prevent the genuine evils of the world means to them that God isn't punishing them when they're in pain, that God hasn't abandoned them in their pain, um, or that maybe even, you know, some people will go so far as to say, well, what I think is good and loving is just not what God thinks is good and loving. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, neither. It's, there may be, there may be a partial truth to that, but when it comes to even and and even to grant that I, when it comes to things like holocaust or those macro evils that you mentioned uh, uh briefly yeah. it's hard to construe those in any way but as evil i mean and so yes. yeah uh you know when it rains on your saturday when you wanted to play baseball uh you know is that really evil okay maybe we can have an argument about that but when your sister gets raped that's evil that's evil yeah. from i think our perspective and god's right Right. It, I, and I appreciate you just saying that. I think that it, it, helps, it helps us get to the serious theological conversation that needs to happen and stop dwelling in these, well, you know, this could mean this or this can mean that, which I often found in, uh, in some cases in introductory theology courses at the universities where I taught where students were in the class because they had to be. Uh, and it was my job to, to hopefully to make the topic uh, appealing and interesting to them. But I remember that sometimes before we could even get off in the ground, we would have these 
conversations about, well, what do you really mean by X, Y, or Z? And it's sort of like, uh, okay, well, that's, we can have that conversation, but that's preventing us from doing the, the, the really, the harder thinking that I think this kind of subject demands. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I want to talk about what, I guess what your, not what your book demands, but it invites us uh, into, into a new way of thinking and, and, or in some cases it confirms, as you said, toward the conclusion of the book, intuitions that we might have. And it gives us language for these intuitions helps us articulate what we really believe. And in some cases reminds us as C.S. Lewis, uh, well, he said it in a movie. I think he said it in a book too, but says that we read to know we're not alone. Mm. And as I was reading this book, I, I was really struck by, by the claim that you finally made that is really that this is good news. Mm. Um, and I, uh, and the good news to me is that it's on page 48, among others, we shouldn't blame God for evils God can't prevent. Mm-hmm. And that is such a relief to hear. I mean, I, as I mentioned, it, it changed my, the way I think about prayer a little bit. It, it helped me come to a different way to articulate prayer. And it helped me realize that, sure, when it comes to theology and, and maybe a sermon I might be preaching, this theology is makes perfect sense, mm. but uh, and it, and it's it, it is quite liberating to 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 recognize that hey maybe God isn't punishing you for something, and not only that, but maybe God can't actually correct what's happening in the moment. I guess my question is is that that sort of belief though is so hardwired into mm. some of us, or at least it's so conditioned that it's hard, practically speaking, not conceptually, but practically speaking, to believe otherwise. And I'm curious, was this a struggle for you uh, up to and including the book? And if so, how did you progress through it? Yeah, yeah, it was a struggle for me. I mean, you know, when, when we think about God, for most people, their default notion is some kind of view of omnipotence or sovereignty or you know, controlling power on God's part. Um, it's not without reason that when Hollywood does a movie about God, they call it, you know, Bruce Almighty, not right. Bruce Omnipresent or Bruce All Loving <laughs> or Bruce Omniscient or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's it's the power angle that people go to. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize the problems with the power issues early on, but like you said. I not only couldn't find a way to get around them, I I didn't want to have a weakling God. (laughs) And I still don't want to have a weakling God. I don't want an impotent God who watches from the sidelines eating popcorn and saying, hey, you know, look at Dan down there. He's struggling right now. You know, tough, tough luck for him. I can't do anything about it. I'm not involved. Mm -hmm. Um, So finding a way to talk about God really being powerful and yet being uncontrolling was what was most helpful for me. I still believe God is a real causal actor in the world. I even use the word almighty to talk about God's power. It's just that when I use that word, I don't mean the idea that God could single-handedly fix things or bring about outcomes. And so um, part of my journey was finding, realizing I could get rid of a particular way of thinking about God's power without having some kind of impotent God. You deal with this uh, later in the book. Talk about how God is almighty for you. Can you share a little bit about that? 
with us? Yeah, I've, I've wrestled with the right words, you know, to talk about God's power. Um, I rarely use the word omnipotent or sovereign, but I started using the word almighty really because it's the word that most English translators of scripture use when they talk about El Shaddai, for instance, the, mm-hmm. the Hebrew word. Um, it doesn't literally mean almighty, but it's the word that English translators have used. And I realized that I could believe that God was almighty in at least three senses. God is mightier than all others, or to quote the psalmist, God has no equals. God exerts might upon all others. And God is the source of might for all others. In God, we live and move and have our being, as Mm -hmm. the Apostle Paul puts it. So God could be almighty in those three ways and yet be unable to single-handedly prevent evil, be unable to be what philosophers call a sufficient cause, which means bringing about some outcome all alone. Hmm. And that's really a probably one of the most central themes of your whole book is that God can't heal um, or overcome evil single-handedly, that God requires our cooperation for these things to occur. Yeah, that word single-handedly is really important because I don't think God is observing from the sidelines. I don't think that it's all up to us to do things, but I think God acts, empowers, calls, inspires us and other creatures, in fact, even non-human creatures, to cooperate to the extent possible to, uh, to bring about what's good in the world, to do what's beautiful, truthful. And for me, at least, that's like a bonus to the uh, idea of God can't, <laughs> because not only do I get to say God couldn't have stopped this evil, and therefore God's not to blame, I can also say your life and my life really matters because God calls upon us to cooperate in making our lives and the world a better place. I can't help but think of a possible connection here between uh, Tikkun Olam and the Jewish mystical tradition. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's no. the idea is that the universe came about in a way that God didn't totally intend. And, and, and so the result is that human beings play a special role. In, uh, in helping God mend this broken universe. Nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of thinking, and it's, it's neat to hear what I think are confirmations of that in your book. Uh, although the first part of what I just said, though, might be problematic to you, and I'd love to hear more. That I noticed that in your, your book, and I can't help but ask this as a Lutheran theologian, Good. <laughs> I don't see any reference to a fall. Uh, and I don't, mean a, I don't mean a historical fall, of course, but I mean the fallenness of all creation. There isn't... There isn't. There is talk of how nature groans. There certainly is that. And I, I mean, you talk, for example, about illnesses that can't be healed, and and about maybe earthquakes. Which I would say that all of these things, the Apostle Paul might say in Romans eight, are part of the groaning of nature. But I, 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 I found myself wondering. Well, okay. And you talk about how those are natural, naturally occurring things, and that. And that sin can result in suffering for other people as well. So you, you acknowledge the, the moral evil, I guess you could say, as well as uh, the natural evil. But I don't hear when it comes to the natural evil, 
evil, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I, and I, so I'm curious, I mean, do you allow for any kind of separation here from God? That I mean, What's the source of these natural illnesses and disasters? That's what I want to know. Yeah. So um, I can use language of This is also called Easy Questions Podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But I mean, since you have boldly answered the question of uh, of evil in the book, I'm curious, yeah, what is the source of evil in your theology? Yeah, I can use language of fall and original sin, but I don't believe that there was once a time in which everything was perfect and then a couple of people, you know, sinned and then it all fell apart. So I think there was evil occurring before humans evolved uh, in the evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. But more deeper, I think, that your question is asking is, you know, what about, how do we account for even the possibility of evil if God is a good God who wants to create a good world? Um, It's hard to tack it all on human free will. Right. So um, I actually have a, a bold claim that will surprise maybe some listeners, but um, I don't think not only that the world was ever perfect, but I also don't think God ever started with a blank slate. So I deny what theologians call creation out of nothing. Hmm. I think God is always creating in relation to what God previously created. And this creative process is everlasting. Hmm. I go into quite a bit of detail on this idea in this newer book called Questions and Answers for God Can't. And uh, maybe to give you a little taste of it, let me, let me tell you the illustration I start the chapter off with. Yeah, <laughs> I good. say, uh, imagine there's a city that uh, decides it wants to take some land right in the middle and make it into a big park for the kids and especially the kids of the city, but for everyone. And they, uh, you know, go through the process of getting a contractor and they tell them, you know, hey, we want, you know, lots of places to play. We want good food. We want places to hang out, whatever, whatever. So the, uh, the contractor goes to work building this massive park with all these amenities, kid friendly. And he gets done and, and uh, he goes and walks through the park with the, uh, the city leaders and the uh, contractor brings them to a merry-go-round right in the middle of the park. And the city leaders notice that there are big signs on this merry-go-round that says, no playing on the merry-go-round, stay away, this is not for you. And the city leaders say, no, what's going on here? Why can't anyone get on the merry-go-round? And the contractor says, well, I've constructed this park so that if anybody gets on the merry-go-round, all kinds of calamities will spring up. Knives will jut out of the, of the um, grass. The uh, vending machines will automatically start dispensing handguns. Uh, the sodas you have will turn into meth. And he this starts, is quite an imagination you have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> the city leaders say, why are you doing this? You know, why put this? Why make a park? in which doing one particular thing is going to cause all these other problems. Yeah. I say, that's the same question we have for a God who can start from absolutely nothing and create a world in which one particular sin, if you believe in a literal Adam or Eve, or even if you don't, human sin can somehow screw up the whole kit and caboodle. Mm -hmm. If God has the capacity 
to create from absolute nothingness. You'd think that God would be able to do a better job <laughs> of a world in which we live. Mm-hmm. But if God is always creating in relation to that which God previously created, mm-hmm. that means there are agents, factors, forces, uh, causal capacities that are built into the creative system itself. And so God at the Big Bang can do a lot of creating, but not absolutely, doesn't have an absolute blank slate. Hmm. Wild idea, I know. Well, it, it, uh, <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I, uh, I, I guess what I find myself wondering is, is it accurate to describe this view as saying something like that God creates as God goes? Or as creation yes. unfolds, God is uh, an active, uh, the is actively creating as the creation itself unfolds. Yes, yeah. Some people call it ongoing creation. Sure. Or they, they use the Latin creatio continua, right. continuing creation. Right. Just that I'm saying not only does God continually create in the present, but there was never an absolute beginning of God's creating. God has always been creating out mm. of that which God created previously. So how does that square with a, a universe that, at least for the majority of scientists, uh, scientists believe had a, a finite beginning? Yeah, I do believe the universe had a beginning. But I think that beginning was in response to the chaos of a previous universe. So (laughs) just like this particular Uh universe seems to be expanding and will eventually sort of go into near utter chaos. I think the previous one had that. (laughs) I love it. So so, uh, it is creation ongoing, but not at T equals zero at the moment of the Big Bang. There's That's right. Yeah. So St. Augustine says something about this for our readers. St. Augustine is, uh, some would argue, the, the most important theologian in the West of the first thousand years of the Christian faith. And uh, he argues that, uh, that questions about what God was doing before God created the universe as we know it uh, are nonsense. But if you must answer... He says, you can say, or he, he avoids the temptation of, of answering it. But if he's forced, he'll say, well, God was preparing hell for people who ask questions like the one you're asking now. But, but yes. the reason he thinks it's nonsense, and, and, and I'm not saying your view is, but the reason he thinks it is, is because uh, time, of course, doesn't begin, uh, isn't before. And that's something that contemporary scientists have affirmed as well, that time and space are created at the moment of T equals zero, at the, at the first moment of the Big Bang. And what you're saying is, is that uh, there was a time before time, and there, there was, was a time, time before that time as that's well. Right. That's right. I think there's God always has existed, and God's experience has always been time-full rather than time-less. And in that time-full experience, God has always been creating. Huh. Um, so actually, Thomas Aquinas said that something like my view was logically possible, but he rejected it because he thought that the Bible required creation out of nothing. Right. But today, even very conservative uh, Old Testament scholars will say, no, there's no explicit claim about creation out of nothing right. in the Bible. Right. Um, so... I'm not saying my view is explicitly laid out in the Bible either, but I think uh, the idea that God always creates in relation to something is a very strong biblical theme. And I'm speculating that Mm. that creative process 
had no beginning, just like God had no beginning. So on, a, on the one hand, you, you, you actually do address the problem that Augustine, or actually Aquinas more so than Augustine, that, that if you don't say that there was a finite beginning, then you simply have the problem of infinite regression, right? That, that it goes back indefinitely, creation, and, and there's no way of explaining its source. But what you're saying is that, well, yes and no, there was a beginning, to this world. That's right. That That's we right. can say that we, or we, so we can say there was a point where this world began, but <laughs> there was a yeah. world prior to that. That's right. And yeah. it's and almost like, uh, it, it's almost like uh, the universe is a kind of, um, and I mean the universe in the big way you're talking about it, which contains uh, indefinite uh, universes before and presumably after this one. That's right. Um, that uh, that there are these moments where something new, it's uh, creatio no, novo, I guess, where the new yeah. creation is not only something that for Christians, Christ brings about and say in his way of being in the world, uh, but but rather something that is also identical with the creation of this of this universe as such. Yeah, it is a new creation. Exactly. Every moment's a new creation. Huh. The question is, what kind of creation will it be? And so when the Apostle Paul talks about our being new creations in Christ, I think he's talking about a particular kind of new creation, one shaped by love, service, those kinds of things. Hmm. But uh, in my perspective, and I don't think just mine, but a lot of people's perspective, something new is created moment by moment because right. the process of creation is ongoing. I, I want to talk about, uh, I, so I, I realized I've come up to my limits when it, when it concerns science. <laughs> There's, there, are, there isn't any additional scientific question I could ask. So I want to go to scripture where I actually have Sounds some good. facility. Yeah. And, uh, but, I, but I do have a lingering question, though, that, that pertains to the creation of these uh, successive worlds, we'll just call them. Yeah. Um, in our world, we know that uh, at least the science tells us today that uh, that the universe is some 13.8 or 7 billion years old. Right. And and what I see in your book is this uh, is this emphasis on how we must cooperate with God to overcome evil in this world, to bring about healing in this world, etc. But it seems like uh, um, God had to. F- wait a long time to find partners with whom God could work to make this happen. And even if I uh, accept that there are other animals that can perhaps to some degree, even deliberately, well, I wouldn't say deliberately, but I think that's for us that we can deliberately uh, cooperate with the creator of the universe uh, who shares the same goal we have when it comes to healing and new life and so forth. But Arguably, no other creature can do that. And, and arguably, I mean, it seems hard to, to, to maintain that an inanimate universe could create or could co-create or I'm not, that's not the right word, but could work together with God to bring about uh, more healing and more wholeness. So how do you, how do you address that? Um, yeah, well, first I would say I am open to the possibility that other creatures cooperate with God. I don't think they do it to the conscious level that you and I do. So I would want to talk about levels of complexity or levels mm. of cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm even open to saying single cell organisms can cooperate with God, but it would be nothing like conscious cooperation. 
But you bring up the more interesting question, and that is, what do you do with inanimate matter? Because it, according to most scientific speculation, it took a long time for organisms to emerge in the evolutionary process. What do you do with bits of rock or whatever right. that, that were yeah. around? And that's a really uh, a difficult question, and it forces us to ask the question uh, of philosophical question of ontology. That is, what are the most basic elements of existence? What are quarks or, or quark-like particles? Or what are the very smallest units of reality? What are they comprised of? Mm -hmm. And the, the common view is that there's something like little bits of matter without any, um, without any responsiveness. And I'm in a tradition, and I've been convinced by ideas which suggest that we should think of the fundamental units of reality as having some tiny measure of uh, mind-like or menta mental qualities. Mm -hmm. yeah, some people call this panpsychism. Mm -hmm. I like the word material mental monism. And the idea is that, yeah, got some big language. <laughs> because it's, it's so much more catchy than panpsychism. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I love it. Uh, yeah. So it's, anyhow. It has the alliteration. I do like it. There you go. Yeah. So what's, what's the phrase again? Material, material, mental monism. So okay. material obviously stands for materiality, mental uh -huh. mentality. And monism is a way to say that there's just one kind of ultimate thing in reality. Mm -hmm. And that one kind of ultimate thing has both mental and, and material properties. Mm -hmm. So all kinds of sophisticated stuff to say that um, the long evolution of the universe, such that humans are really in the last second, if we say it took a whole year and we sort of laid it out in a long timeline, humans are very, very late uh, emergent species in this evolutionary history. Mm -hmm. You might think that if God really wanted cooperators and you had a traditional view of God's power, God ought to just snap those right into existence. Right. But if it takes a really long time to get to people like you and me, maybe that's more uh, evidence or at least uh, more power for my view that God can't snap things into existence single-handedly, but must work with what's pre present and possible in the creative process. Mm -hmm. It's, a, it's a, a, such a tragedy to think that in this last second of the universe this universe as we know it, this the very beings who could deliberately, as you said, uh, cooperate with God could also potentially destroy themselves. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's the whether it's because of climate change or nuclear proliferation, that that this crown almost I don't want to say that, but in a way, for the moment, this crown of God's creation could be its very undoing, at least in this tiny sector of it. Which is, you know, I'm sorry if I keep coming back to this. I, I see these issues as, as uh, reasons to believe that God doesn't have uh, coercive power or controlling kind of power. Because if God does, if God could fix climate change single-handedly, then, right. you know, you and I should just quit self-sacrificing here. We should just, you know, we should just decide that the climate change is God's will or that God's just going to rescue us unilaterally sometime. Um, but if God can't, then what we do personally really matters to combat climate change. Right. 
I, I still want to get to the scripture questions, but okay. I, but since we're on the topic of, of climate change, it, it relates to another question I have about, about why God. So let me set this up. The, the argument I sometimes hear is that if we act in time, and there are scientists now who are saying we have 10 or 11 years left to act, and if we don't, uh, we will find ourselves in a situation that is 100% irreversible, uh, that, uh, that we will have set into motion certain things that cannot be reversed. And, and, uh, and they'll say, but, but, you know, if we can act before then, the, the conditions of the earth itself will realign or, or Mother Nature will find a way to, to start to heal herself. I guess a critic would say, you're just adding God to natural processes that we can already explain in terms of natural processes. We have to do something to combat climate change. Okay. Mother Nature presumably can work to heal herself as we do that. Why add God to the equation? That's yeah. my question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of ways I could answer that, but I think I'll go kind of macro for a second. Um, science doesn't provide us with ultimate values at least science as typically understood, doesn't provide us with ultimate value. So you use the word like healing. Um, that's a positive kind of thing. Um, why is it the case? Why would it be the case, for instance, to think that um, getting ourselves together and to combat climate change is a good thing? I emphasize good because that's a value kind of claim. And so I think that if you are going to talk about goodness, you have to have some kind of um, some kind of register to uh, ground those values. Now you don't have to believe in God. You could be a Platonist, for instance. Um, you could just say, "Well, whatever is good is good for me." But that sort of relativism doesn't work very well when other people might have different notions of what good is. Uh, so one of the ways, one of the reasons why theology and belief in God really matter is to give a fundamental grounding for even questions of what healing and goodness really are. Because without that, it seems like it's just, well, again, relativism, whatever I think is good or whatever you think is good. Right. So would it be fair to say from your, from your point of view that God is something like the summation of all values? I, I've heard that language before, or that it, I guess what, you're, what that answer does is it's, uh, it's practical. It helps me understand how the, uh, how the concept of God can be of value when it comes to articulating values that can then inform action. Yeah. But what about ontological? You used that word earlier. What, yeah. What ontological necessity is there for God being involved in these processes? Well, here uh, I would want to start off talking about what philosophers call metaphysics. And so what general picture of reality, in this case, the world, God, the universe, God, what general picture is most compelling, answers some of our biggest questions, motivates us to do the good? And the general picture I find most compelling is not that God is like uh, the sum of values, as if God is uh, impersonal or non-relational. I actually think God is the one who calls us to these values in a moment-by-moment -moment direct kind of way. 
So, um, you know, the biblical writers, since we're going to go to the Bible here in a second, yeah. the biblical writers often compared God to something like a loving parent, a loving parent who guides us, who calls us, who instructs us. Um, and so one way to think about God, not only as being, uh, I should say, God as being more than the source of values, but also the the impetus the drive, the lure, the, the wooing, the persuading that many of us feel intuitively toward the good, the beautiful, and the healthy. Hmm. So it's not just that God uh, somehow, the language of God makes it possible for us to think more clearly about what we're doing and why we're doing it, but that there's a kind of root uh, to that. Yeah. That, there's yeah. A, that we're being moved by something and lured by something yes. uh, in these processes. Um, and that something, for lack of a better word, is God. Yeah. And, you know, I know it's in some circles really difficult for people to think about God as a person or personal. Mm-hmm. Um, I am okay about talking about God as personal. And the word I prefer is relational. Mm-hmm. When I use that word, though, I don't mean that God is like my personal butler, you know, and just does whatever I want. I don't mean that God has just a bigger body compared to me. I mean, some of our Christian brothers and sisters think that, but I, I think God's a universal spirit. So by personal, I mean this notion of an omnipresent spirit who has a will who guides, who calls, who nudges, who influences us, and whom we can nudge and influence as well in this dynamic giving and receiving, moment by moment, non-controlling, uncontrolling relationship. That's what I mean by God. It's one of the things that I really uh, appreciated about your argument was that uh, God can't uh, for this reason also, God doesn't have a body like you and I have. And, yeah. <laughs> and part of me, I'm thinking, of course, absolutely. Yeah. It I, took uh, me a long time to get that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 actually, I, had a, I did a children's sermon uh, sometime back and uh, uh, we've got some really bright kids in the congregation. And uh, I, I remember thinking this was such a big deal when I read it in Soren Kierkegaard, who talked about how uh, the reason you can't see God is because God is omnipresent. So I asked these kids the same question. And a uh, nine-year-old next to me, I, I said, why is it that we can't see God? And I had a couple answers ready to go. And she's like, because God is everywhere. I'm like, oh, <laughs> nine years old. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm reading this in Kierkegaard in my 20s or 30s and thinking, oh, wow, that's profound. But 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 yeah, but it really struck me again in your book that it's it's one of those answers that that is it's profound, but it seems obvious once you hear it, right? Yes. Uh, and and so I I read it and I'm thinking that's that's exactly it. I mean that's part of the reason why God can't. It's not only because God is uncontrolling love; it's also because God is spirit, as the as the Book of John says. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, which takes us to scripture. All right. <laughs> so. <laughs> I uh, I had a couple questions here for you. Well, let me start by saying this: I scripture plays a really important role in your theological thinking, and I I, I love that. I love the right. way that you uh, I, I found I, I loved it so much that in a, uh, a research project I'm doing right now, I cited you several times 
in your understanding of uh, of um, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Oh, good. And how uh, and I did I I, I followed up on on an, uh, a claim that you made about how instead of saying that it's for our listeners, it's a story of how Joseph's brothers, according to the book of Genesis. Uh, um, betrayed him they were jealous of him they were angry at, at him and so basically they threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery years later uh they find themselves in the midst of a famine uh and they go to egypt uh to seek assistance and it turns out that joseph's uh fortune had been reversed he ends up being in considerable power and it just so happens that he stored grain and uh and at the end of the story uh joseph says basically the, the common translation is that, that this was all part of God's intention, that God intended one thing and then, but that, that one thing bad happened, but that was part of God's intention. And, and out of that, something good happened, which was also part of God's intention. It was basically saying to me, everything happens for a reason, right? Okay. God had a plan all along. But uh, as you pointed out, it can be translated in another way. And, and that is, it can be that God took a, a bad situation and used it for the good rather than that this was what God had planned all along. Yeah, yeah. And, and I find that such a helpful way to read uh, that text. And uh, uh, I also appreciated the way that you uh, interpreted Romans 8, where Paul says, all things work according to the good, which people again use to justify this claim that God is sovereign, that God is the Lord of history, that God okay. is all-powerful, and that everything happens for a reason. My question to you, though, is this. When I got to Job in your book, <laughs> Job, it's tough because Job is, as most of our readers know, is the classic story of, uh, of around the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Job is a perfectly dutiful uh, servant of Yahweh, we're told, in the beginning of the story, and yet these horrible things happen to him, Right. And so what you say is that it's important for us to know that God was not the cause of Job's suffering, that it was the evil one, as you pointed out in your book. You can see I'm setting you up for this. Yes. <laughs> um, but if you go to Job 42, verse 11, and I'm setting you up because I'm willing to bet you have an answer for this. Uh, and if you don't, we can always edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> but, but if you go to Job 42, 11, it says that his family and friends comforted Job for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. So here's, here's the, the bigger question, though. It's not to say, ha, there's a book in the Bible that doesn't actually work with your theory. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's more to say, um, why is it so important for us as theologians to, to do the hard work of almost rescuing the Bible in certain cases? Yeah. And what do we do about those passages like Job where maybe they just can't be rescued? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there are two issues here that most people meld together, but I want to keep separate. One issue is, does the Bible support my basic claim that God can't single-handedly prevent evil? Or maybe another way to say it, are there any biblical stories or texts that explicitly say God brought about this result and there was no creaturely contribution. Mm -hmm. So that's the God can't thesis. Does the Bible undermine the God can't thesis? And my response to that question might surprise some people. 
I don't think from Genesis through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, through every story and miracle to the resurrection of Jesus, to the eschatological future, the Bible ever explicitly says God alone brought about some sort of circumstances. I used to think that, but I've, 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 I've raised this challenge to many people and no one else can find a passage either. There's sometimes only God is mentioned for sure, but it doesn't explicitly say there aren't creaturely causes. Hmm. I want to set that next to what I think is the point of your particular bringing up Job. And that is, are there biblical passages that say God caused evil or wanted evil? And there are. Mm -hmm. When I was a little kid, little kid, when I was junior high, high school, even into college, I believe God was loving and I'd have come across these passages in scripture, like God, you know, telling the people to bash the baby's heads of their enemies against the rocks. And I wanted to believe God was perfectly loving. And I'd see that and I'd kind of squint and kind of cock my head and say, well, maybe from the divine perspective, killing babies is really loving. And uh, I just can't do that anymore. Right. I just think that there are passages of scripture that get God wrong. Mm. And perhaps this Job one that you mentioned is one of those. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'll say it more strongly. I'm pretty sure that one is one that just simply got God wrong. Huh. Now, it makes a lot of my friends nervous when I say this, because they, sound, they think I'm saying, well, I'm smarter than the Bible. You know, Who are you to stand outside the Bible and say the Bible is wrong about something? But I don't do this because I think I'm smarter than everybody. I do this because when I look at the general drift of Scripture, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, says the psalmist over and over. Right. God is, you know, is, is faithful and forgiving. And the clearest revelation of God, I think Christians want to say, is in Jesus. Mm -hmm. When I look at those themes, those point away from thinking that God sends evil, causes evil, right. wants evil. And so I'm willing to say we have to take the majority witness mm. of Scripture. And that's on the side that I'm proposing that a God right. of love isn't in the evil business. There is a, a book by John Hott, a theologian uh, out of Georgetown. He's in science and religion. Yes, uh, yeah. And, and he, uh, he talks similarly. And, and I find that to be really a helpful way that it's not like you're taking, say, a modern perspective and imposing it on Scripture. No. You're really using Scripture to interpret Scripture here. That's and what right. you're doing is you're taking the broad themes of liberation, for example, of God's love, of God's, uh, you said, relentless love, which I think is great language in, in this book, um, and interpreting the particular passages in light of this. And I thought, after I read, uh, saw this in your book, and then I went back to the Job story, I thought... Well, okay here. All right. First of all, it's Job's, uh, it's Job's family and friends who say this, which I think is interesting because you remember that in the, the chapter prior, God chastises Job's friends for getting it wrong. So they get it wrong even after, yeah. after the, the story is, is over. The second thing is that the, the, uh, the literary format is different. And you can see that obviously for our readers, you can see that in, in, in your translations when it switches from the, uh, when the formatting of the text is different, right? So in this case, it's clear based on the formatting of the text in the English translations that this was probably written in prose 
and the and the majority of the narrative was written uh, perhaps in poetry. There's some distinction there, and that makes me think that think that this possibly could have been the work of a redactor of an editor who later came along and tied up the loose ends of Job's story. There's another angle here that I think we should mention that I'm sure you know, but I'm not sure all of our listeners know. And that is, and it's a really tricky one, and it's going to probably be unsettling for some people, but it's this reality. Translators of the Hebrew Bible, Greek and Hebrew, have their own assumptions that come into play when they make choices about words. That, that Romans passage you mentioned earlier about in the book, I lay out four different translations and they have very different interpretations in those translations, I assume, because translators themselves have certain theological assumptions they bring to the text. But even better is that um, Joseph's story if I had known what I'm about to tell you before I'd written the book, I would have added this in the book. But okay. um, the common English Bible translation of Genesis 50 verse 20, I believe mm-hmm. it is, says this, you plan something bad for me, but God produced something good. Mm-hmm. That fits so nicely with that particular chapter in the book, yep. which says God works to squeeze something good from the bad God didn't want in the first place. Yeah, the, the Dewey Rhymes uh, Catholic translation uses for produced, turned into. Turned it into, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that somehow God was part of the process that brought, that squeezed the good out of the bad, as you just said. And I yeah. think that for, for Christians, this is how God works in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes, yes. That, that yes. sure, uh, Christ anticipated his own death, I believe. And so we have the language of prediction in the Gospels. But I don't think there's anything supernatural to that. I think that, that he knew, and that's what makes his, his life so courageous, is that he stood up to the authorities, uh, you know, as, as you too likes to say, in the name of love, right? That's right. Uh, in the name of justice, and, and did so bravely and courageously. And out of that, when, when the, uh, uh, the leaders of the people killed him, God helped bring about something. Out, God squeezed, the, I love that language, God squeezed the, the good out of the bad. Yeah, um, yeah and it, I like that. It, yeah, it's a nice way of reading, I think, the cross and resurrection in the Christian story. Yeah. Um, oh, and then the, the, your point about Job and, and the way that we read these stories generally, I think the, the other issue people will often have is, well, if you doubt this part of it, if you reject this part of it, then you reject the whole Bible because the whole Bible is inspired by God. And for that reason, it's infallible. So if you take one, you have to take it all. And I, I think that that view misses the, the, the broad view that you were talking about. And yeah. I think it's at that level where I, as a theologian and pastor, would be comfortable talking about inspiration. It's yeah, a, I believe in inspiration. Level. I think the whole Bible is inspired. Right. I just don't think that the writers of the Bible always heeded that inspiration. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, which think... makes perfect sense in light of your thesis that, that yeah. God is uncontrolling love. God doesn't force people to write words down that God dictates to them. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my gosh. I think that's what I really like about your, your book overall is that it, it, it has a nice way of comprehensively uh, making sense of these things. And I think that's the benefit. You said a couple times in the book that you were after um, a more believable or something that we can believe, yeah. right? 
Yeah. And that's the benefit of finding, uh, um, of, of advancing in theology. It's not like we believe that we're going to get to the absolute 100% <laughs> objective truth. But at the same time, we don't just throw in the towel and say, well, why, right. even, why even bother if we can't arrive at that, at that capital T truth? What I see here is a, a kind of uh, the explanatory power of a, 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 of a particular theory is what gives that theory its value in this discussion. Mm. And I, I really take that as a huge, that. huge compliment. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Uh, and thank you. I, uh, um, I, like I said, I enjoyed a lot of the, uh, I enjoyed all of the book and I, and I especially appreciated those moments where I found myself uh, agreeing, but also disagreeing and, and, and kind of wanting to hear you flesh out more of, of, of why, um, uh, of why you think the way you do. I, my last question for you is is really uh, about kind of uh, the, the difficulty. I know that this book, uh, uh, like uh, that, this book doesn't always generate sympathy on the part of your readership. <laughs> and and there's part of me, and you kind of answer this at the beginning or at the end. But I, I, for the benefit of our of our readers, why face that? Why continue in this perspective when you know that it's embattled? When you know your voice is not the dominant voice? for this when you know that for every one person who believes God can't there are thousands who believe God can in all ways hmm. why um, why uh, continue to push forward on this what I want most in my life Dan is to live a life of love that's my guiding principle that's the reason I'm a Christian. <laughs> if Christianity wasn't about love, I wouldn't be a Christian. Mm. Um, and with that overarching impulse to living, loving life, I want to bring into bear all the big questions, the hurts, the pains, the joys, all of life to try to help people. Sometimes that helping is conceptual, and this book is pretty conceptual. Other times it's just, you know, flesh on flesh, <laughs> you know, very <laughs> hands-on. Um, and there's also, as much as I want to help others, there's also a certain element of wanting to, to help myself. <laughs> yeah. um, I've gone through some tough times myself and asked these questions. And these answers have been very, very helpful to me personally. And so it's not, I'm not entirely altruistic, <laughs> uh, but uh, the altruism plays a, a major role too. Uh, wow. Uh, amen to that. I, uh, I think that's, that's why I'm a Christian too, is that, is that God is love, God is grace. And if it yeah. wasn't for those things, what's, what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a really special episode of God for Grownups. I want to thank again, our guest, Tom, you can find his book, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils on Amazon. For further episodes of God for Grownups, you can go to godforgrownups.fm or subscribe in any podcast app. To comment on the show, send an email or voice recording to pastor at queenandlutheran.org for possible inclusion in a future episode. You can also visit queenandlutheran.org to hear my sermons, listen to our weekly audio services, and watch our monthly video services from Queen Anne Lutheran Church in Seattle. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of God for Grownups.